0: Microphone check, one, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check, good, sounds good. One, two, three, rolling, and.
1: China's moving on, it's progressing. And of course, it it is a shame, but a lot of those old traditions and cultures, you know, will be lost. And and I really did feel that, that we were documenting the last of a lot of things. You know, one thing I've learned in business is the importance of finding your niche and finding something you're truly passionate about and being able to to sell a story. And I think there's a lot of stories that I know in, in Beijing and China through the fortune of being here for so long that I would love to tell.
0: Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 106, and it is brought to you by Barong Films proud creators of documentary film, the documentary life podcast, and now the independent filmmakers essential checklist course, our free eight part course designed to help you achieve financial stability, gain support and effectively distribute your documentary film. Before we get into today's show, I just wanted to let you know that the podcast will be going to a bi weekly release, or as they say in the UK, once a fortnight. So the next time you'll hear from us will be on Friday, June 14th. Now, on to today's show. If you've never been to Cambodia, but have seen photos or video footage of it, you've most likely seen one of two things. You've either seen some kind of archival footage of the Khmer Rouge, the notorious radical group that took power in the mid-70s and proceeded to destroy nearly a third of its own population, or you've seen the images of the magnificent Angkor Wat temples, the incredible stone structures built sometime in the 12th century, and then kind of forgotten until they were rediscovered by French explorer Henri Mahot around 1860. Even in photographs, these temples incite ums and ahs, but to see them in person, it's a powerful, mind-blowing experience. The faces of the ruling Angkorian king, Jayavarman VII, that protrude out of these giant monoliths are forever sealed on your brain once you've seen them in person. I truly never grow tired of seeing these temples up close, although until this trip, it had been years since I'd visited the temples in the town of Siem Reap, ground zero for all things Angkor Wat, and all things touristic. Over the past decade, Siem Reap had really become pretty inundated with tourists, or Barang, as they like to call tourists in Cambodia, and I tended to stay away from this kind of action. Now, it wasn't quite the hedonism and crowded streets of Khao Sarn in Bangkok, but it also wasn't that far off. But my friend and filmmaking companion Patrick, he had a place that he was renting up in Siem Reap, and I needed to shoot some scenes there, specifically B-roll, so we decided to head up there after our time in Kampot. As it had turned out, Kampot hadn't been nearly as successful a filming trip as our time with Seng in and Chumnik had been. You'll remember, we had been filming Seng and his family in his hometown during the Chinese New Year. Well, the bulk of that New Year we spent down in Kampot, a town and province down in the southern part of Cambodia, quite close to the beach resort town of Kaip. Kampot and Kaip had traditionally always been one of my favorite spots in all of the country even if previously Patrick had had to find a doctor to hook me up to an IV to get my system back in order. In any case, this time out, Kampot had turned out to be a bit of a disaster. It wasn't Kampot's fault. It was our fault. Traveling anywhere in Cambodia during the Chinese New Year and trying to meet with people or businesses, it's a highly unadvisable thing. (laughs) So when we'd set out there to try and film a particular scene of a particular Sensi Si Samut song, Kampak Kampul Dung Chait, we didn't anticipate how difficult it was going to be navigating through the throngs of people that had descended upon the beach town for the holidays. And we hadn't anticipated having such difficulty finding a place to stay, or more importantly, an artist that we could film depicting the Sensi Si Samut song. But that was Kempot. It didn't work out as planned. We hadn't found an artist to film. So we were now on our way to Siem Reap. To try and film an artist who could depict the famous Sinzi Smut song that he had written about Siem Reap, aptly titled, Champai Siem Reap. I should probably explain a little something here. The main subject of our film, Sinsi Sumut, the most famous singer to ever come out of Cambodia, was killed during the Khmer Rouge time in 1975. Which is something that the Khmer Rouge were quite known for. Killing the artists, the doctors, the teachers, the educated, and destroying the libraries, books, personal properties, law records, money, anything that depicted Cambodia prior to 1975 destroyed. Even the majority of Angkor Wat's temples had the Buddha statues beheaded or dismembered. And because of this, we were not only making a film that was about the legacy of a man who was no longer alive, but to our knowledge and research, only had one single piece of archival footage of him, a short clip from a movie that he had been in called Apsara. So, A huge challenge for us with this film was figuring out creative ways to depict Cincy Samut and in many ways Cambodia of the 60s and 70s. This was obviously not really a surprise to us since we were well aware of the lack of photos, footage, and even recordings from that time. We knew very early on that we would need to embrace a very different approach to telling this story, certainly in the case of the visual aspect of storytelling and this involved our approach to b-roll. B-roll is just one of those pieces of filmmaking that can either make your documentary look like just another talking head film, with the occasional b-roll shots edited in, or it can take your documentary film to another level of complexity. A lot of docs that you'll see you can kind of tell that the filmmaker shot an interview and then based on the content of that interview afterwards went and shot b-roll shots that went along with what was being said and that's totally acceptable it's a formula that can work right but we felt that with elvis of cambodia that kind of approach to b-roll just wasn't going to well shall i say cut it We sensed early on that if we were to have any success with this film, and that if we wanted to create a film about one of the most extraordinary artists Cambodia has ever known, then we were going to have to do our best to match that artistry. And therefore, we had to make something like our B-roll one of the more compelling elements to our film. This morning was to be our second of three shoots with artists that were depicting a very specific Sun Samut song that depicted a very specific place in Cambodia. As already mentioned, Kampot hadn't worked out too well and we were either going to have to cut the Kampot scene or at some point get back down there to try and shoot again. So this scene that we were about to shoot with an artist here in Siem Reap was actually the first in the series that we were doing. The idea here was to take a local artist or viche takar, as they say in Khmer, have them listen to the Sinsiy Samut song, and then have them create what the song meant to them. Our viche takar in Siem Reap was a painter in his late 30s, a Cambodian military man who was making the majority of his money by selling his paintings of Angkor in Siem Reap. He had this welcoming smile and really seemed to get what we were trying to do, and so we were pretty excited about spending the day filming with him. So as you can probably make out behind me, we are currently in the process of the first of three sequences we'll be shooting with a local artist from a town in which Cincy Smuts sang a very specific song. This is CM Reap and this is for the Champai CM Reap song. Let's get a closer look at our Viche Takar, which is Kamai for artist. Let's see what's happening here on set. In terms of approach, we decided on a multi-camera type of strategy. I would man the main camera, which was our Canon C300 Mark II, and Patrick would use his Sony a7S II on a slider. We'd also shoot some time-lapse stuff with a GoPro, and then also use an additional Canon 7D. The idea was that this scene would play over the entirety of the song. We'd start very close in, and we'd gradually move out until eventually, by the end of the song, we would completely reveal the artist and their work. Our shots would be intercut with one another. Now, there might be very tight shots of paintbrush tips dipping into paint or brush strokes across the canvas. There'd be some tights on hands and eyeballs, slow movements from trees or flowers or figures as the song progressed and the painting started to take shape. Patrick and I would move and work around one another all day. We'd switch up lenses, camera positions, slider movements even a few drone shots for good measure and we would kind of do our very best to avoid distracting our VJ tokar or our painter and just let him get into the flow of his work while we did the same again the whole idea here was to try and shoot our b-roll for the scene in as artistically a way as possible an artist and his or her work depicting an artist singing about their town or province at the end of the day what resulted was this kind of dance amongst a handful of artists all with great respect for one another's work and ultimately all with great reverence for one of the most profound artists this country has ever known it was a deeply satisfying day and later on as Patrick and I sat and watched some of the dailies We were left with the sense that the B-roll that we had shot on that day was exactly the kind of B-roll that was going to be needed to elevate and celebrate the story and the figure of our film. And other than a few tweaks here and there, exactly what and how we needed to shoot the remaining two Vichy Tricar scenes. You've been listening to part six of our Chris in Cambodia series. I'd like to encourage you to really try and think outside of the box when it comes to shooting B-roll for your own documentaries and to try and get away from the conventional shooting of interviews and then filming of cutaways afterwards. And instead to try and find more compelling and complex ways in which to shoot your B-roll. If you can think about what your film might look like without the interview, without the safety net of words and see if you can visualize a more interesting way in which to visually depict the story of your documentary film. I'll also just quickly mention that you don't always have to fully plan out your b-roll shots all of the time. Sometimes a very interesting shot may present itself when you least expect it, but maybe you decline to shoot it, thinking that it's not something you'd find a way to use. Well, I'm here to tell you that you should shoot it anyway there is a reason that that something caught your eye or looked good in your frame. You may not understand those reasons at the time, but you should trust your instinct anyway. You'll be amazed at how once you sit down and begin editing, a shot that you were unsure of at the time, it might suddenly really elevate a scene or moment in a totally unexpected but quite beautiful way. So please, whenever you see the possibility for an interesting shot, just shoot it. If you'd like to see some of our interesting shots and behind-the-scenes footage of our film shoot with the artist of Reap. you can check out the show notes for this episode and others by going to our website at thedocumentarylife.com. Up next on TDL, our weekly conversation with a documentary industry guest. And I have a feeling that you're really going to like this one. That's all coming up next, here on The Documentary Life. If you're anything like me, when it comes to doc film preparations, checklists are an essential part of that preparation. Whether it's putting together a gear list, storyline notes for an edit, or gathering materials for a grant application, checklists are very helpful in ensuring that we're prepared for whatever may lie ahead in our doc journeys. Which is why Steph and I, we've put together a very special offering for you, a free eight-part course we're calling the Independent Doc Filmmakers Essential Checklist. In this course, we outline the essential areas you need to build or establish in the non-creative or business aspects of your documentary film that will help you to effectively manage, successfully fund, and eventually launch your film out into the world. We believe that given the right strategy and insight, every doc filmmaker can achieve their goals and intentions with their films. We believe that there is money out there for every project, that it's just a matter of finding and securing it, and that with the right preparation and strategy, every film can be met by an active, eagerly anticipating audience, and that includes yours. To enroll in the Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist and see how the course can help you, just head on over to the slash courses. It's free, and just as we do each week here on the show, this eight-part checklist and course will inform and inspire you on your documentary film journey. Something I wanted to mention before continuing on with today's show. You've probably noticed that we're playing around with some pretty cool fresh sounds on this season of TDL. And I'd like to thank Musicvine for supplying us with those cool, fresh sounds. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about how Musicvine might be able to serve your doc project, you can check out the show notes for today's episode, or you can simply go to their website at musicvine.com. 17, Dominic Johnson Hill left the UK to travel alone to Africa, where he stayed for a year before traveling on to South America and India. After reaching China in 1993, he stayed for 25 years. It was in China that he got to know the locals of Hutong, the backlands of Beijing, and began to learn Chinese. By studying and absorbing Hutong culture and its history, he was able to master the intricacies of the Chinese language starting from scratch. Before hosting the documentary TV series, Seasons of China, he founded a street fashion brand in 2006. It was called Plastered 8 and was inspired by his experiences of the local Chinese culture. Dominic Johnson-Hill, welcome to the documentary Life. We're happy to have a conversation with you.
1: Well, thanks Chris. What what an introduction. <laughs> I uh, I'm I, I'm feeling old.
0: <laughs> you and me both, man. You and me both. Dominic, a big part of the reason we brought you on today's episode is that a, a big part of the conversation that we often have, Dominic, is how doc filmmakers certainly nowadays more than ever really need to embody this entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit, and you are someone that mm-hmm. can speak at at length, at great length about that and for good reason. And so maybe Maybe a nice way to start this conversation would be to talk about, you know, before TV, before doc filmmaking, before the Seasons of China series, which of course we'll get to, you were an entrepreneur and you can you found yourself in Beijing. Tell us briefly about that story, coming to Beijing and your first instances of, of entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah, well, um, as you said in my introduction, I left home at an early age and was really um, I, I did terribly at school in England, um, and so I felt that staying in England had very little hope for me. Um, and I was always very adventurous, and so I started to travel and hitchhike across, you know, countries, and and started doing a bit of alpine climbing, and 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 it was that was three years of travel of South America and uh. Africa and India, and then. I arrived in China in 1992 because I had an older brother who was working um, on a contract in, in, in a city called Qingdao in China, and I came to visit him. Yeah. And I came up to Beijing on my own. A lot of people say, why did you stay in China for one well, now 27 years? Um, and, and it's quite simple as I, I ran out of money when I arrived in <laughs> Beijing. And, uh, and and I had, you know, nowhere to go. Uh, and so I, you know, so much about entrepreneurship is being in the right place at the right time, mm. Chris. And, and And I ended up, you know, in Beijing, in boomtown mm. you know uh, the 90s in china was was the crazy time where yeah. you could have you know tried your hand at anything and you would have made money yeah, yeah. and there were there were literally two bars in the whole city in 1992 and i went to one of those bars and I was rubbing shoulders with CEOs and CEOs of big companies who were coming to China to set up their rep offices. And I was doing jobs that I was totally unqualified for. And so what, what, what kept me in China was this incredible, like, just opportunity everywhere. And it wasn't a country that I, I fell in love with because it's, it's, Beijing is not a city that you come and necessarily like, wow, it's beautiful, like, like India was. It was, it, it, it was. it was flat. It was gray. As, as foreigners, we had our own money. We weren't allowed to spend, you know, Chinese money. We had to live in foreign designated housing. Yeah. Um, but 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 um, but I started to, you know, it was in China that I started to think as an entrepreneur, and that was because everywhere I looked, there were there were industries or there were markets that hadn't opened up yet. Mm. Uh, no one had done this, and no one had done that. No one was doing market research. No one had done T-shirts, and I and I thought, wow, you know, I could do that. I've seen that, you know, work in the West, um, and then of course, then you're surrounded by millions of entrepreneurs because the chinese are probably the most entrepreneurial race on earth and so uh, and and so that's really where i i got the bug you know i just happened to be in the right place at the right time and through osmosis learn about how to be an entrepreneur on, yeah. a, on a kind of on a street level and i and i got hooked
0: well and of course to, you know for any sort of venture like this you need a certain amount of capital and you find yourself in beijing and and mm. as you have said yourself you didn't have much money and and that is often the case where doc filmmakers don't have a lot of uh, financial resources to maybe to begin mm. in this case a, a number of our listeners first projects uh, what can mm. you share with us in terms of uh, you know maybe advice or suggestion to kind of raise mm. that capital
1: well my first business was in market research and it was really um, I, you know, I love travel. And so I went and traveled out to parts of China that no one else wanted to travel yeah. to because they were so off off the beaten track. But there were still millions and, you know, hundreds of millions of customers there. Um, and I applied myself and, and, and set up networks, you know, through taxi drivers and kiosk owners. And I was providing, you know, uh, information on on products, foreign products that were being sold in China. It was yeah. very basic stuff, you know. So, uh, I didn't need an awful lot of money. All I needed to do was buy a fax machine for the taxi driver who would then drive around and, and gather the information and fax it to me because it was before email. So my startup cost on that was was quite small. Uh, but what I found was you know, I, I, I had the market because no one else um, was doing it. So yeah. it was the right place and right time. But, mm-hmm. but in terms of creative projects, and now I'm in the creative industry with my, with my current brand called Plastered, yeah. is that what I really find, found was at the beginning, I, I was able to get incredible talent to work with me Um, for almost nothing and if not nothing if I could sell them a good idea Mm. and and what I found was with creatives because I hadn't worked in the creative industry before is that if I if I was passionate about an idea and I could pitch it well to someone it was the amount of people that would fall in line and work with me on that idea for almost nothing Um, uh, or or quite often just for nothing because they were behind the idea and so really I I had to work on my skills as a salesman um, and my skills um in terms of storytelling wow. um so that I could get people to 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 join in that journey with me because when I started past it and still to now I don't know how to use design software and I'm now an artist but I got to uh, what I found was that you know the, the better um I was at, at at selling a story or or selling an idea and then uh, documenting it well mm. and 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 then putting that um content in in a, in a decent form that that people would see that I had you know, uh, you know, done in- interesting things before. And, the, and and then more and more people would want to join in that journey that I was on. So at the beginning, you know, I, I started plastered, um, with, um, it was 30,000 RMB. So, you know, around $5,000. Yeah. Um, and I still, I still own the business outright. I just opened a, a shop on a, on an old hutong that had no shops. It was completely empty. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I, uh, then built it by, being extremely creative about how I got people, you know, to find out about my brand, whether it was through storytelling or, or doing, you know, events, but and really just getting people on board um, because they like the idea. And I really found that with creatives, they, they, they you know, if you can sell them on an idea, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get on board and 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 not need a lot of money.
0: You know, I've been on that street. Uh, I, I, I think I at, at the before we got on or before we started recording, I mentioned to you that I'd done some commercial gigs in Beijing. I've been on the street uh, where your shop first started, and it's it's hard to believe um, that it was as you described initially, because of course it's it's a it's a pretty big booming area now, to say the least. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, crazy. I mean, I was the first shop on the street. Yeah, um, and it now. Um, gets, on public holidays, 100,000 people a day. And when I, 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 so how it started was, you know, I I moved into an old residential street that was 800 years old in Beijing um, to live with my family. Um, And then one day I had an idea to set up a a T-shirt shop on that street because the rent was cheap and it was an old alleyway and I thought it would be fun. Um, But obviously there were were no people on the street. That street on a public holiday now gets 100,000 people a day. And we were the only, you know, and and 13 years ago, we were the only shop on the street. Um, And so, you know, I mean, it's a long story, but, you know, I started off by holding, you know, catwalk shows on the street, yeah. um, and uh, and then people started to come and interview me, um, and uh, and I made some fun videos with my with my mobile phone, yeah. um, and did a lot of events. And then more people started to open shops on that street, and then it turned into like the busiest retail street in Beijing, uh, which <laughs> it's is unbelievable. you know, yeah, it's a crazy kind of China story. But this kind of stuff happens in China, yeah, you know. Yeah, um, it's, it's yeah. uh, you know, it's it's an economy that's. Been you know going now for 40 years in terms of open economy, yeah, yeah. and it's still got a it's still got a long way to grow. Um, and so, um, as I said at the beginning, right place at the right time, you know, and then uh, and then applying myself and working with the community really of where I lived. You know, I was very embedded into the community. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, worked with the local chamber of commerce, worked with the um, the local old ladies on the street to <laughs> to, you know, to man my stores. You know, it was uh, it, it was a great story of community and. Um, and being in the right place at the right time. In 2016, China's 24 Solar Terms was inscribed on UNESCO's representative list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity. The ancient Chinese divided the sun's annual circle motion into 24 segments, or solar terms. It is wisdom of China's traditional agricultural civilization and has been passed down from generation to generation. But how does it relate to today's world and how is it affecting our everyday lives? In the 24 episodes of this documentary series, The Seasons of China, I will visit towns and villages, speak to old and young, experiencing the traditions and customs firsthand.
0: Well, speaking of right place at the right time, your current documentary series of which you are the presenter on is called Seasons of mm. China. Let's turn direction mm. a little bit towards Seasons of China at, at this moment. And and, and maybe mm. at this time, let's turn our, our our direction to Seasons of China a bit. And and how did that first come to be for you? Were you in the right place at the right time? How, how did that series happen, yeah. Dominic?
1: Well, then when I take you back to when I opened my T-shirt shop um, – China's most famous talk show host came to my store. Mm. And I was talking about the importance of story is when she came to the store, yeah. I told her the story of my brand. And then I took her to my house that was behind the store and introduced her to my children wow. and then told her the stories of the, of the designs. And she was so into the story that she asked me to go on her chat show. Um, and, you know, in China, you're talking, you know, China's Oprah Winfrey. so you're talking her show gets audiences of up to sort of twenty million. Oh, boy. And that was my first ever time on television was on a chat show with twenty million people oh, watching wow. and uh, and I pulled off a bit of a marketing stunt because i I wore a t-shirt on the show that had my telephone number on it without telling anybody. <laughs> and then during and then during the show, she um she pointed out my t-shirt and then everyone started calling my number. But then what happened right. from there was pe- people people, Thought I was good at telling stories, and and I try to be entertaining, and obviously I speak Chinese, yeah. and and it was a great story for Chinese media. A foreigner who speaks Chinese, oh, yeah. he celebrates, you know, he celebrates Beijing through these designs yeah. on his T-shirts, and it went from one show to the other to the other, and then <sighs> you know I was never passionate about television. In fact, I was very anxious in front of the camera, mm. um, but I just you know pushed myself, and then it was show after show, and then I ended up as a as a judge on China's. Um, Um, entrepreneur show that you have in America like the Shark Tank whatever Mm. you call it that Um, and um, I did that show for six years and then I did a show on CNN very quickly one day and then (sighs) I got spotted and then I got asked to do a show that was owned by Fox called The Vintage Hunter where I travel around the world to vintage markets and then and then I do a lot of shows in China. You know, I'm, I'm I'm very known in China on on television as one of these foreigners who speaks Chinese. He's been here a long time, and and so I get pulled into I get pulled in to do a lot of shows. Whenever there's a public holiday or some celebration, there's like let's interview Dominic. He's the uh, <laughs> the random foreigner that's, that's so um, wild, yeah. That, that's been here a long time, and so. I, you know, um, it started with a T-shirt shop, and then it ended up as a as a television presenter. You know, so uh, yeah. I, I feel incredibly incredibly blessed and and fortunate to be in this position. I hear that, and I, I quite I hear often, yeah. I, I quite often ask myself how it all happened. But the seasons <laughs> of China was, it was quite funny because seasons in China is it's a twenty four. Um, episode show, yeah, um, and we had to, you know, record that in one year because it's twenty-four seasons, mm. and each season happens every two weeks, mm-hmm. and it coincided with me being in China for twenty-four years, and it just seemed too good to be true. Wow!
0: Um, wow.
1: And so, you know, I was asked to to present it. Um, it didn't make any financial sense to me because yeah. I wasn't, you know, paid a huge amount of money to do it, and I've got, you know, a, a team of twenty people a and, lot a, of and other a retail yeah, yeah, a lot of other responsibilities. But I'm so passionate about mm. travel, mm. and I love china so much and i love getting out to the countryside where you see the real china yeah um and so i had to have a long you know word with my wife after she'd had a glass of wine and say listen <laughs> listen something's come up
0: <laughs> yeah right and, <laughs> for uh, maybe the next year or uh, two also,
1: yeah exactly and you know we also have four daughters you know so and and you know she was so sweet and she's like you know i know how much you love this and, and you should do it And so I committed and did it and it was, it was every, every 10 days, you know, I was off for uh, for another adventure Um, and it was probably the most incredible year, if not the most incredible
0: year of my life. In terms of sort of the day-to-day production, can you give us, can you paint a picture on, well, first of all, what was the size of the crew that you were operating with as a presenter? And then how Mm -hmm. much time was happening, how much time was being spent on sort of research and content building before you would arrive in in a village or in a province?
1: Okay, Um, because it's China um, and and this was um, well-funded, um, we had quite, you know, a large um, team, I guess, compared to maybe a lot of documentaries that you might do in the West. So yeah. we had, uh, two, we had two cameramen, mm. uh, we had a sound guy, um, we had a, a director, we had a director's assistant, um, and then we would, in each province that we travelled to, have a um, a local um, government uh, assistant who would help us you know in filming in certain villages and areas and you need to have government permission to film um in in any area in china yeah, yeah, yeah. so we would have um they, they would be along to help as well so you know there would be you know upwards of you know eight of us uh, for for the shoot yeah and so it's quite a large um i guess you know compared to maybe some of your listeners who uh, were who working on on a, on a smaller budget would be quite a considerably you know, a large team Um, So my name is Dominic Johnson-Hill. Even though I'd been in China for a very long time, I never knew about the 24 solar terms. I'm very excited to learn more. So to go on a journey for me is fascinating. Right now, here in Guizhou... We're in a beautiful mountain part of it. Now, we've just headed from a place called Shiqian up to a village called Loushan. Now, the reason I'm heading to this village is because I've heard on the internet that they have incredible local customs and traditions here. And it's a great place to learn about Lichun or the start of spring.
0: In terms of, of being the presenter and being the interviewer, how much say did you have Dominic in some of the actual content that was being filmed certainly your your leading conversations, but was all of that prepped for you beforehand or or again how much how much say did you have in that content?
1: well I mean I'm very passionate uh, about story, yeah, you know and that's how i re- how I really built my brand and so um I um you know, at the same time, I'm running a business, so I, I'm not writing the script. So I, I would um, be sent a script uh, usually a week prior to the filming. Mm. And that was researched by a team of probably three or four people, mm. um, uh, you know, in the private production company and also with the help of the Chinese news agency. And then we would arrive. But I, where I played a big part was you know, some of the really interesting parts of the documentary are my conversations with people in these provinces. And a conversation- Oh yeah, of, you know, I totally uh, agree. You know, <laughs> uh, you know uh, as, as I tell, you know, as I told my daughters who speak Chinese, I said, you have this incredible skill, which is you can go and travel anywhere in this country of 1.4 billion people, and you can have a conversation with them. Mm. And that's so powerful. And so going to these provinces, and, you know, one time I was hanging out um, for this one season called, uh, where there's, you know, you've got these combine harvesters, these little entrepreneurs who, who, who borrow money to buy these combine harvesters for like $20,000 yeah. or $30,000. And then they literally ride them, you know, thousands of kilometers across provinces, all the way across Henan and then up towards Beijing, just uh, you know, harvesting wheat for families—you <sighs> know, six hectares at a time, yeah. eight hectares at a time. I got to hang out with this guy for, you know, three days and sleep with him. Yeah. You know, in a wheat field by yeah, his yeah, combine yeah, harvester, yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 crazy conversations. You know, I mean, that he has not, no idea about England. You know, I mean, there a whole bunch of flies <laughs> came into the combine harvester, and he said to me, "Do you have flies in England?" I'm like, "Yeah, we do have flies in England." You know, very innocent conversations yeah. like that. And then, uh, and and then I also found that because I was, I, I'm a foreigner. I'm a very, uh, you know, hard-on-sleeve kind of guy. Uh, I'm, I have a, a lot of emotion, uh, and I found that they they really opened up to me. You know, um, uh, you know there's there's a uh, with any society within its within itself, there's a lot of complications. We English people are quite distrustful of each other. When I hear an English person, when I hear an English person speak, you know, your wife is English. You know this. As soon as an English person speaks, you're like, okay, he's he's private school, he's public school, he's north, he's south, and, <laughs> oh, and then yeah. you start to make you start to judge each other. Yeah. But this is an English guy. Who's six foot three? You know, he's bald and he's got a big nose, and he speaks fluent Chinese. And he's talking to me about you know my relationship with my wife. You know, which was a funny one because he's away from his wife you know uh, for so long. You know, uh, harvesting this this wheat, and he really opened up to me. Yeah. So it was uh, it was fascinating. So I got to dictate the story on that side, which was that I got to have incredible conversations with people. Yeah. Um. And uh, and really found that they they got to open up and also you know, I got to lead this story in that, you know, it's so fascinating these things from a foreigner's perspective.
0: Oh, man. Um,
1: and um yeah, so it, it was a lot of fun
0: as you were making seasons of china did you always were you always kind of aware that d- you guys were filming moments and you were filming people and parts of culture that 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 soon at some point in time will no longer be like were you constantly aware of that that you were that you were putting something down on film you were documenting something and and there's importance yeah. in that
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about when I arrived in China in 1993, there was, you know, there was uh, 400 million less, um, uh, sorry, more people living in the countryside than there are now. And so with that that, that whole mass migration into the cities, you're seeing a lot of these cultures um, disappearing. And I even, in one of China's oldest provinces, Shanxi, which is where really the Han Chinese come from, on the Yellow River there, Mm. I got to hang out with a guy who's been, uh, you know, who's been who's given money by the government to try to restore um, local customs and traditions. You yeah. know, I got to hang out with a with an ironmonger monger who who who, um, who makes tools for farmers and fixes tools for farmers. <sighs> uh, absolutely fascinating guy. And, and another woman who made who weaved, you know, uh, red lanterns that everyone hangs outside their houses during Chinese New Year. Oh yeah. Uh, and they're trying to they're, they're they're trying to preserve all this culture, and and it's his hard job to do it. But in a country as old as China is, you know, two thousand eight hundred years. You could go back three or four thousand if you like. And there's so much culture in history, um, and it's very difficult to preserve that. So really, yes, absolutely. And and even down in Yangshuo, I was hanging out with the guys who 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 do the fishing with the cormorant birds. Was yeah. a lot of people. Uh, envisaged China these guys in these large straw hats and uh, and fishing with birds, these cormans. Yeah. Um, I got to hang out with them. Um, and really, no one does it anymore. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make sense, that that type of fishing uh, for them. Um, but some of them uh, are still there, and they're doing it, if anything, for tourist purposes. But it was amazing to be on a boat and to see a guy let go of his corman and see it swim underneath my boat and catch a fish right underneath. Now, albeit that fish he had pre-caught and tied it to a piece of string and yeah. and, uh, and to a rock and left it on the bottom of the river bank <laughs> so that his comment could catch it. His comment was definitely his comment was definitely out of shape. Yeah. Uh, but I uh, but I did get to see it happen and then you did get a, a feel for it. But there's so much culture in, I mean you know China's moving on, it's progressing, yeah. um, and uh, it's got still got a long way to go. And of course it, it is a shame, but a lot of those old traditions and cultures you know will be lost. And, yes. and I really did feel that that we were. Documenting the last of a lot of things, especially with the farming, because the, the the that's the really the last generation of of the small farmers. You know, the the, the every family would get a six hundred you know acre or sorry a, a hectare of land for each member, um, and they're still holding on to that. But those people are now in their fifties and sixties, and they're getting too old to farm, and their kids are in the cities, and uh, you know they can't come back to help them. So that that land is going to get redistributed. and It's going to become big
0: farms. Dominic, as we wrap up our conversation here, I'd like to sort of ask you, having worked uh, at great length on this docuseries as a presenter, does it, uh, does it inspire you or scare you away <laughs> from actually doing your own documentary film?
1: It does not scare me away at all. Yeah. In fact, I think, you know, one thing I've learned in business is the importance of finding your niche yeah. and uh, and and finding something you're truly passionate about and being able to, to sell a story. Uh, you know, with I, I happen to sell T-shirts and, and artwork. It doesn't sell if I can't sell the story behind it. Mm. And I think um, I, there's a lot of stories that I know in, in Beijing and China um, through the fortune of being here for so long that I would love to tell. And if anything... You know, we, we're wrapping up. You know, the whole back end of it now. Yeah. I'm really, really would love to get uh, back into doing documentary. Um, it's um, and and China is a great place to do it because I think you know you can find funding here. There's a lot of funding for for the arts and culture, um, and um, and I think you know if I can find the right story, find the right niche, um, and 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 find you know uh, some support. And, and get people behind it, that I could tell a really good story. So absolutely, I would love to do more documentary.
0: Well, Dominic, if I am fortunate enough to uh, find myself in a commercial or documentary uh, job over in Beijing again, I certainly hope to pop by the plastered shop and I'd love to hang out with you, man.
1: Oh, please do. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll take you for a swim in, a, in, a, in an old lake in Beijing and it's uh, it'll be a pleasure to host to have you over
0: <laughs> that's wonderful i love it thank you so much for being on the documentary life dominic thanks
1: for having me chris
0: don't forget if you're interested in our free eight-part course the independent doc filmmakers essential checklist course go to the documentary com slash courses thanks again for listening we'll see you in two weeks time doc lifer